Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we started a four-week series on the letter or the book that uh, Jonah in the Old Testament. It's an Old Testament book, a, a minor prophet book, not minor because of importance, but because of size. There are only 48 verses in this small book. In the first chapter, what we learned is we saw a few things about Jonah. First, that he got a call from God. And instead of answering that call from God to go to Nineveh and preach, Jonah got up and he ran. He ran 2,500 miles or intended to run 2,500 miles away, essentially ending his career as a prophet and a follower of God. Why did he run? Because he hated the Ninevites. Why did he hate the Ninevites? Because they were a sinful group of people, so sinful, in fact, uh, that God was going to send the special judgment upon them before he was really judging Gentile nations. Think about that for a moment. You know, that's how sinful this group of people was. Uh, and so Jonah also probably hated them because at this time they had already started sending raiding parties down into the northern uh, parts of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, the northern tribes. And, and so there was a, a reason that he hated them. They were so brutal, in fact, it said that uh, kings, uh, one king in, in encouraged his entire city to commit suicide as they were marching in to overtake them. Uh, so... Jonah thought he could run, but as Jonah 1.17 says, look at it, it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time. May your spirit grab a hold of our hearts right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me shift gears for a few moments. Have you ever really blown it? I mean, just really blown it, right? Uh, uh, perhaps that, that moment of blowing it uh, was with flashing lights coming up right behind you, and you realize, man, I shouldn't be driving, or I shouldn't be doing this, or, or, or I just can't have another ticket right now. Perhaps that moment was realized when a teacher put an F on a paper that you needed to pass. Perhaps that moment was losing a job, or losing a relationship, or it was being caught doing something you weren't supposed to do, somewhere you weren't supposed to be. You know what I mean, right? I, I mean, have you ever blown it, Raise your hand if you've ever blown it. Anybody ever been in that position, right? If you're in that position, what typically happens when you blow it? Uh, shame and guilt set in. Sometimes uh, you seek reconciliation. Some resign themselves to the fact that they've blown it, right? And since I've blown it, I might as well just continue to live in that blown state and just live life. I mean, after all, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to hell. That's all that's said and done. And so let me just continue living that way. Have you ever noticed when you think about blowing it, how hypocritical the world is? Let's think about that for a moment. The world oftentimes likes to look into the church and say the church is the one that's judgmental. But the fact is, is that when you blow it in the world, out there in the world, the world's always there to remind you of the fact that you've blown it, that you're never going to measure up, that you're always going to be that insignificant loser who has done fill in the blank. That's what the world does to us. And then when you try to make things right, this is what the world says. Well, the only reason you're sorry is you've been caught. The, the only reason that you're sorry is because it's costing you so much. And, and maybe you walked in the room this morning and you're still living in the explosion. That explosion of blowing it. Like, what do you do? And maybe this is maybe a last-ditch effort to put yourself in a position to make things right with God or to save a relationship or uh, you, you don't know if it's going to work or not, but just, here you are. You're trying to do those things. If that's you this morning, we've got a lot to learn from Jonah chapter 2. Once again, verse 17. 
And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. There are a couple of quick questions that pop up right here. Do I really believe that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish? The answer is yes. And if so, do I really believe that God could cause him to live and talk about it later? And so the answer is yes, but there's a little bit more to that answer. First, that first part, do I believe that Jonah could be swallowed by a great fish? Yes. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to go through into all of the details. If you want to do a little bit of research on your own, there's this wonderful thing called Bing or Google or DuckDuckGo, whatever your choice of searching out on the internet is, and look up a couple of different people about being swallowed by whales and surviving. There are two accounts of that taking place in recently modern history. Uh, so, but the thing is, is I want us to understand, I believe it can take place because remember the Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if I can believe those words, then everything else that comes after it, I can believe. As a matter of fact, why is it so far-fetched that I can believe that, right? And, and also, if I didn't believe that, how could I believe the resurrection from the dead? How can I believe those? I believe these things to be true. And, and also, does, do I believe that God could keep him alive? Yes, I do. But there might be a small chance as we dig through this text that we can see that Jonah maybe didn't live initially. Maybe the greater miracle that took place is that Jonah was resurrected from the dead from inside this belly. Why do I say that? Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. How was Jesus in the heart of the earth? He was dead and he was resurrected from the grave. And Jesus is pointing back to Jonah saying, just as. And so, you know, maybe when somebody comes up to us with these questions like, well, do you really believe a guy could live three days? Well, yeah, I do, but maybe he didn't live. So we're, we'll see that as we're, we're digging through. So Jonah chapter two, verses one through 10. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head, and the roots... Of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed up upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pray, who pay regard to, to vain idols, forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a loud voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So a couple of quick observations there. If you look at verse see uh, 2, 
He says, I cried out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. Now, in the Jewish mindset, Sheol was the place of the grave, the pit. And, and so Jonah's saying, like, from that place, and so one might argue, well, he's close to that. I mean, that argument's there, and it's true. But look at verses 5 through 7 again. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And so Jonah was at this point realizing, man, all is done for me right now everything is over this is the point of death and and so the bigger picture here remember these are the side issues the the the, the bigger thing that we're going to focus in on this morning is repentance and what repentance looks like and how Jonah repented in his path and what are some of the lessons that we can have but when people come up to you and say well do you really believe he lived well yeah I do and 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 there's a possibility that the bigger miracle was that he died inside that fish and that he was resurrected from the dead in order to fulfill the task that God had called him to I believe all that to be possible but the big thing I want us to see is Jonah's path to repentance. First, Jonah had an immediate regret. I wonder how long it took Jonah to be like in regret, right? It's said, and I don't know who says this stuff, but, but it's said that there's this immediate point of regret when people decide they're going to commit suicide. And, and so I, I don't know how Maybe some have lived through that attempt and they all have the same kind of mindset. Then the moment I jumped or the moment I pulled the trigger, or the moment uh, this happened, I had this point of regret. And this is Jonah. How long do you think it took for Jonah to have this point of regret? Was it as the, the, the men of the ship were picking him up and hoisting him over? Was it as he began to sink in the water? Was it as the great fish came and put him inside his stomach? I, I don't know. But the point we do see is that Jonah had immediate regret. There's nothing that will cause us to enter into that immediate point of regret quicker than living out the consequences of our own sin. And is there anybody else in the room like me? Like, well, how convenient for you, Jonah. You're living out the consequences of your sin and all of a sudden you're sorry. Have you ever stood over the deathbed of someone and had a conversation with them about the gospel. I have, not just because of being in ministry, but because of family. I can remember the day my mom decided that she didn't want to get the trach put in, knowing that not getting the trach put in meant that she was going to die. And as a matter of fact, she died the very next day. And I remember looking at my mom and tearing up and saying, Mom, you know, I mean, I've talked to you about the gospel so many times. Have you submitted and given your life to Jesus Christ? And she, you know, shook her head yes. And, and, and uh, she died the next day. Yeah, and I have to be honest with you, right? As, as I was leaving the hospital that day and even the next day, as I was considering, you know, my mom passing away so quickly, and my sister's in this point of celebration. I mean, I just have to be honest with you. There was a part of me in my struggle that said, well, how convenient for you, Mom. How convenient. All of those years and all of that pain and all of those things and, and the many times that I had shared the gospel with her, the many times that she had come here to worship with us when I was here before and even over at the Johnstown Christian Church that I thought after sharing the gospel with her, getting her to that point, I thought she was going to give her life to Christ and express that by being baptized in him. And she never did. And here she was at the point of her death and like, well, yeah, I, I believe now. How convenient for you. And then I realized something. I'm thankful that my mom's eternal state does not have anything to do with what I feel about her repentance. 
As a matter of fact, I look in Scripture and I see a couple of other people that are the same way, like David, right? We talked about David at the beginning. We're going to preach about David's life uh, some, at some point in this year. Uh, but the fact is that how convenient for David after Nathan stands up and points the finger at him and says, you're the man that he goes back into his chamber and he writes Psalm 51, these eloquent words and against you and you only have I sinned. God, really? What about, you know, the man you killed? What about Bathsheba? What about her family? Or, or, or how about the, 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 the older brother of the prodigal son, right? Have you ever put yourself in his position here, this prodigal son is, and he comes up to his dad and says, Dad, you're as good as dead to me. Give me my inheritance. And he went to a far-off land, and he squandered his living, and he found himself feeding pigs, longing to eat the food. Have you ever seen pig food? And you know you're in a bad place when you're looking at that thinking, gosh, I wish I could have some of this right now. And he decides at that point, you know what, in my father's house, the servants are in much better shape than I am. And so he writes out this speech, and of course he doesn't write it out. He has this speech, and he begins to practice it, marching home. Father, forgive me, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like a slave. And the older brother comes home. Don't you think he had a right to say, man, how convenient for you. How convenient for you in this moment. And it struck me as I think through this. Man, David's repentance, the prodigal son's repentance, the only thing that made that necessary was what? Their sin. It doesn't matter how that sin came to be known. Fact is, is that, that, that when sin is often brought to the forefront, people are often relieved. And those that are outside looking in think, well, how convenient for them? No, really, it's not. The truth is, I'm glad that my mom's eternal state does not rely upon my skepticism. The truth is, I'm glad that my eternal state does not rely upon the skepticism of so many other people in this world. You go around and start bumping into people and say, Larry House is a preacher. They're going to look at you like, what are you talking about? Man, so when sin shows up, immediate regret takes place. The Bible says this, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without it, without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. It produces death. Where does godly grief come from? It comes from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as he points out our sins and he calls us to repentance. Where does godly grief come from? It comes from the work of other people in our lives that come alongside of us and say, listen, what you're doing right now is wrong. They're the Nathans in our life that point their fingers into our chest and say, you're the man, you're the woman, you're the one who needs to repent. So, Jonah had an immediate regret. Second thing, Jonah threw himself upon the mercies of God. Look again at verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried out, and you heard my voice. Remember, this was written after the events that are recorded in this small book. And, and as Jonah was dying, did he die? Maybe. Did he not die? We know he was in that process. As he was dying, he threw himself upon the mercies of God, basically saying, God, my sin, my disobedience has placed me right here inside the belly of this great fish. I will once again look to your holy temple. Jonah was not declaring here that he was actually going to stand in the presence of God's holy temple again. Remember, we talked about this as we unpacked chapter one. Back in 2 Kings, or 1 Kings chapter 8, when King Solomon dedicated the temple, part of his prayer was asking God to hear the prayers of his people as they went away from him. 
And as they would look to the holy temple. Uh, and so Jonah lifting his heart toward God's temple. Why? Because God's presence was among the people of Israel. More specifically, it was inside the Holy of Holies that the Ark of the Covenant would sit. Will you go ahead and put that picture up there on the screen? Uh, so go one more. So this is what the Ark of the Covenant might have looked like. And so uh, uh, as you see that, listen to what God's word says. Exodus chapter 25. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make of them. On the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet you and from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I will give in the commandment for the people of Israel. Did you see what God declared? He said, I'll meet with you there. And so for the Israelite, the presence of God was this picture on that mercy seat between the wings of the cherubim. And there's one more verse from the Old Testament that I think we need to see. And it's Leviticus chapter 16, verse 14, specifically pointing to the day of atonement. He says, and you shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in the front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. And so to look toward the temple for Jonah's mindset and for the mindset of the people of Israel was to literally look toward the mercies of God. And so in this point of his sin, Jonah is declaring, right, I have nowhere to go right now, but to the very mercy seat of God. God, I'm casting everything upon you at this point. So, and finally... Jonah's path to repentance. Jonah was willing to obey God. Look again at verse 9. He says, But I with a voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Okay, Lord, you want me to go? I'll go. That's what he's saying. If you save me from this point, God, I'll go. You want me to go to Nineveh? I'll go to Nineveh. It's important for us to realize right here, right now, that oftentimes before our hearts are in line with God in repentance, sometimes our obedience needs to be in line with God in repentance. We're going to see in the next couple of chapters that Jonah really just relented, relented to God's will here. It's, okay, God, I, I know I've sinned against you, and I've done what was wrong. I really don't want to preach to these Ninevites, but I'll go. I'll do it. I'll, I'll do what you've called me to do. Have you ever been there? You ever been in that point? God, I know your word tells me to forgive. God, I, I know your word tells me to give mercy. But I don't want to give him mercy. I don't want to forgive him. God, I know your word tells me that I'm supposed to love my enemies and pray for them. But I don't want to pray for people who think it's all right to abort babies. I don't want to pray for people who are rioting in streets. I don't want to pray for any of them. God, they don't deserve prayer. They deserve judgment. But your word, God, tells me to pray for them. And so... I guess I'll pray. Have you ever been there? That's where Jonah is. Verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited him out upon the dry land. 
So what does all of this have to do with us today? Remember, God called Jonah to go and preach, and instead Jonah went and ran. God brought about judgment upon Jonah. This judgment led to his repentance, and his repentance led to him saying, okay, you want me to go? I'll go. And as we take a look at our world today, man, whew, have you done that this week? Have you looked around our world in the past few months, the past few years? There's no doubt that revival needs to take place, but until revival takes place, there's one key element that I think we need to see from this book in Jonah, and from Jonah more in particular. Before revival can take place in the world, repentance needs to take place in the body of Christ. We need to repent. The church has spent a great deal of time pointing out the evils of the world without first asking the Lord to search our hearts. We've not asked God. We've not prayed that great prayer like the psalm writer says, Search me, God. Know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me into that everlasting way. We've not prayed that. And when looking at the uh, passage of Scripture in context, it's king, right? And so we've got to remember context is king. But there's a verse that's often quoted with the goal of national revival in mind that was spoken by God to King Solomon as he was uh, dedicating that temple. And this is really important for us to see all of this together when we think about Jonah. He says you would turn your backs on God, Solomon does in his prayer, uh, to the people of Israel. God would bring punishment, and God's, he asks, God, when we pray, hear our prayer. And God speaks these words back to Solomon, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, man, when I do, God's saying, when I do what I said I was going to do, when you turn your back on me, when you continue to mock my word and my ways, when you treat me as though I don't matter anymore, this is what's going to happen. There may not be a physical locust devouring our land and our resources, but our nation is eating up resources that God's provided, right? And we can do all we want to do to continue to share all the things we want to share. Yes, Yes, factories are all of a sudden catching on fire. Yes, resources are disappearing. Yes, all of these things are taking place. And we want to look to these natural reasons why this may be taking place. But have we ever asked, God, is this because of us? Is this because the church has abdicated its responsibilities to be salt and light in the earth? Is it because we've stopped calling evil evil? And is it because we've stopped challenging each other to live godly and holy lives? Is this because of us, God, that the resources are being devoured by the locusts? There may not be a physical drought in our land, but there's a moral decay that's created a drought in which good is called evil and evil is called good. Man, take a look around, church. One group celebrated for burning down entire cities while another group... For entering into a building, there's constant hearings taking place. Both groups were wrong. Both were wrong, but the church doesn't want to get involved sometimes. I can't help but to look at our world today and wonder how anyone could think that it's okay to end the life of a baby inside a womb. I can't see it at all, but we're told that's okay. 
There is indeed physical pestilence that's devoured our nation and our world, and we've seen that in this pandemic. And what do we do about it? We look to politicians and economists and social justice advocates and entertainers, right? Like John Maynard Keynes wrote in a, a book called The Economic Consequences of the Peace. He says that practical men might not have much time for theoretical considerations, but in fact, the world is governed by little else than outdated or defunct ideas of economists and social philosophers. I agree, except that I would now add novelists, playwrights, film directors, journalists, and artists, pop singers, and such. They are the unacknowledged legislators of the world, and we ought to pay close attention to what they say and how they say it. Man, the church and the church, we've abdicated ourselves to them, and we've made them an authority. They don't have the answers. God's word has the answers. What's needed first is for God's people to take a look inside and realize that he's left us here for a purpose. And revival will not take place in our world until we in the church take our own sin seriously. Do we have sin? I mean, not collectively, but do we have sin that, that we're not taking to the throne of God? Because the Bible says that when we do, these things will take place. And then when God's blessing is removed from us, he says those next words spoken to Solomon, but the principles apply to us as well. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This promise was made to the people of Israel, but the principles are there for us today. I'm not just declaring here that God's judgment will be stopped on our land. I'm not. I'm not. As a matter of fact, I think we're going to see more and more of God's wrath being poured out. I think things are going to get really interesting in our world and in our nation and maybe in our own homes and neighborhoods. God, see what God does is he uses times of revival to place people in a position to meet him. Right? And so usually revival takes place right, right before God's wrath is poured out. All throughout history, we see these things happening. Have you ever heard of a man named Evan Roberts? Evan Roberts was a miner in Wales, England in the early 1900s, and he felt a call to go into ministry. And so he left the mines and he entered into seminary. And not too long after entering into seminary, he felt the call to go preach. And so he went to the, the president of the seminary and said, I'm really called to go preach. I, I, can you release me from my studies so I can do this? And so Evan Roberts began to preach. And, and, and everywhere he could preach, he preached the same message that had four points. And the four points were this. Confess all known sin, receiving forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Remove anything in your life that you are in doubt or feel unsure about. Be ready to obey the Holy Spirit instantly and publicly confess the Lord Jesus Christ. Thousands attended these meetings he preached at and responded to the message of the gospel. Bars, taverns were shut up. They were closed down. Homes were changed. Lives were changed tremendously. As a matter of fact, uh, many people attribute that Wales revival to be the spark of a revival that took place uh, all over the world right at that time frame. And do you know what happened just 10 years after that? Many of these young men that gave their lives to Christ at those revivals died on a battlefield during World War I. God used that time of revival to prepare people to meet him. I really do think God's wrath is coming upon this nation and this world. And I think the church, we need to understand that. And we need to wake up and understand we have to first repent and then go out and start preaching repentance. He wants to use us right now, church, to begin to prepare people to meet him. It's going to happen. 
It's a reality that's taking place right now. So, I want to close with lessons on repentance for us. We need to repent. So, and when we've blown it, here's the first lesson. Repent even if others doubt your sincerity. Even if others doubt your sincerity. Jonah was busted by God. Jonah still took the step of repentance. Right? There may be people around you who are questioning the sincerity of your repentance. Repent anyway. Repent anyway. Remember, your repentance has nothing to do with somebody else accepting it. Like David declared in Psalm 51, which I've had so many problems with for years, against you and you only have I sinned, God. No, I don't have a problem with it anymore because I realize David knows. He knew. God, first and foremost, I walked away from you. And I need to turn around and come back to you. Your friends may doubt your repentance and apology. Repent anyway. Your spouse may declare it's only because you've been caught. Repent anyway. Your kids might not accept the, the, the apology. They might not accept the confession of your sin to them. Repent and confess anyway. This is what David did. Listen to what he said in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as, in, as by the heat of summer. See, if we won't confess and repent, man, we're in trouble. That leads to that next point. Repentance begins with the confession of sin. Far too often, we've allowed ourselves to be victims. We're victims of something, right? Uh, victims of societal norms and pressures. This is what the liberal mindset is in our world today. The reason they can support the burning down of businesses and total anarchy in the streets is because those who are lighting the fires have been oppressed by the great oppressor. And so it's tolerated, so long as you align with their worldview. And then there are others that are victims of their childhood. My parents, they didn't love me the way I should. I was abused. I was ignored. I, was, I am a victim. And here's the thing. All of these things can be true. But that still doesn't give us a right not to confess our sin. We've got to stop acting like Adam in the world today. You know what I'm talking about, right? When God showed up in the Garden of Eden, you remember what Adam did, right? Well, Adam, where are you? Interesting question. Go throughout the Bible and see where God asks people questions, and it's usually not good. Where are you? Well, I heard the voice, and I hid because I'm naked. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat of? Well, the, the woman you put here with me. God, you put her here with me, God. I mean, it was the woman. It was you. It's your fault. David, in that same psalm, declared, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He, he seems to be indicating what the Bible teaches in 1 John. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 8, for if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we have not sinned, we make him a liar 
and his word is not in us. Did you notice what his word says? We can't continue to walk in darkness. When sin pops up, and man, doesn't it pop up? Most of you raised your hand when I said, have you blown it? The Bible is very clear. Confess your sins to God, and he'll give us forgiveness. If we're faithful to confess, God is faithful and just, not only to forgive, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What would happen if we were to get real with our sin and speak it out to God? What were to happen, like to get real with our self-righteousness, to get real with our coveting, to get real with our reliance upon anything or anyone other than him, to get real with the things that we lust about in this earth? What were to happen if we were just to lay it all open before God and say, God, take this from me. I need you to do something. Man, the Bible's clear. He'll forgive us. He'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Part of the victory of sin is not only to confess it to God, but to one another. Man, I think about my men's group that I had there in Linesville. And I remember the day one of the guys walked in, and I'm not going to tell you what he confessed. But to see the jaws of a couple guys around the table, they're just, their jaws drop. And then to see those guys come into action after that in this, young, in this man's life, saying, Daly, you call me when that comes up again. And guys in that group reaching out to him almost daily, not knowing that other people were doing it. The Bible says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. True repentance is also willing to live with the consequences of sin. This is, this is what I believe Jonah was doing. I'm dying. I'm covered up. I'm at that pit of death. I'm reminded of David here when the prophet Nathan informed him about his sin, that David would pray and fast for that child that was alive, saying, who knows, maybe God will grant mercy. And when they, he didn't, what did David do? He didn't get up and shake his hand at God. He didn't get up and say, this is all your fault. He got up and lived with the consequences of his sin. We cannot merely seek to get rid of the consequences of our sin and repentance. And if that's what we're doing, man, people read through it, right? Jesus has to be enough for us in those moments. He must be enough when the spouse leaves because we were unfaithful. He must be enough when the child takes a long time to believe that you've changed. He must be enough no matter what the consequences are. Because far too often I've sat across the table from people that say, man, I've screwed up. And I'm really trying to fix this relationship. And I looked at those people and say, well, what happens if she leaves? Is Jesus enough? Is he enough? You know you've truly repented when he becomes enough. And no matter what the consequences of sin, you're willing to walk through them with his help. Why? Because he's forgiven you and he's cleansed you from all unrighteousness. The final thought, true repentance will lead our hearts and our will to Christ. God's people in the Old Testament looked to the temple. I've explained why. Uh, to look at the temple was to look at the present or look to the mercy seat of God. And as followers of Christ, when we blow it, we don't look to a temple any longer. We really don't even look to a cross any longer. We look to an empty tomb. Right? It's at the cross where grace and mercy meet, and it's at the empty tomb that there's victory and power over sin and death. You've heard me say it in the past, but the most important paragraph in the Bible is found in Romans chapter 3, in my opinion, verses 21 through 26. 
It's where he says that a righteousness has been made known apart from the law to which the law and the prophets testify. And that's righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And in verse 25, uh, I want to really highlight that one. He says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So that verse 25, that word propitiation is the same idea as mercy seat. It's that same idea that God has covered us. He's atoned through the blood of Christ. He's been the propitiation for our sins. The Bible is declaring that Christ is the mercy seat to which the Christian lives or or looks. He's the covering for our sins. And thinking about that for a moment, doesn't that bring some other verses to greater clarity? Like Romans chapter 8, where he says, Therefore there is no... Now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. There is no condemnation for who? For those who are where? In Christ. Those who are in Christ will get real with their sin. Those who are in Christ will confess their sin to God and others. Those who are in Christ will live in constant repentance. See, we look to the cross. We look to the empty tomb because after that moment, the Bible tells us in Hebrews that Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies, not with the blood of bulls, but with his very own blood for our sins, for us, defeating the power of sin and death. Once again, Jesus declared, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great, the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah obeyed God. We're going to see that his obedience was reluctant, but it was obedience. True repentance is seen when we surrender our wills to God, even when we don't agree with it. I believe the world is waiting on revival. And I believe revival is waiting upon us, church, to get real with our sin, to confess it, to repent of it, and to look to the cross continually in our lives in the empty empty tomb. Will you today begin to take those steps to live in repentance so that God can use us to preach repentance? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning for this opportunity we have to be in your word, for this opportunity we have to worship you. And God, as I pray, prayed beforehand, I pray your spirit is doing his work upon our hearts. I pray, God, that you're searching him and pointing out those things that we need to confess, to repent, to give to you. God, so that we can place ourselves in a better position to serve you by preaching repentance to others. So God, whatever that is, may you bring courage and boldness through your spirit to take those steps. We pray these things in your son's most holy name. Amen. There's no doubt that a message like this is preached primarily to followers of Christ, but I would be remiss if I didn't give you an opportunity. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, maybe that's the thing that brought you into the room. 
Do you know that you're a sinner and that, you've died, and that if you do not confess Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life and submit to him that when you die, there literally is hell to pay? There's no better way to say that. There's no way to beat around the bush with that fact. And, and you wouldn't be here today, maybe, if that wasn't even a little thought or question in your mind. The Bible tells us this, that we confess Jesus Christ to be the Lord of our lives, that we repent, and repentance is turning away from sin and turning to God. That's not a one-time action. That's an action that we take every day of our lives. The Bible tells us that we submit ourselves to Christian baptism for the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the remission of our sins, that he'll fill us with his Holy Spirit, that he helps us to live out all these things that we don't think we can do on our own. That's that promise of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us from that point, from that moment on, to chase holiness. If those are steps that you're ready to take, we're going to stand and sing a song of invitation, and I'd love to meet you down in front. Let's stand together.